This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an awesome online learning community filled with thousands of creative video classes taught by experts and professionals. With topics ranging from how to start a side hustle, meditation, the stock market, graphic design, cooking, coding, and everything in between. Learn that skill you were always curious about or kickstart that passion project you've always wanted to. Sign up using our special Suck In Between link in the episode notes or our Insta bio for a free 30-day trial. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we chat with Young Australian of the Year Northern Territory nominee, Dr. Sanjay Joseph. Sanjay is a medical doctor who has done a tremendous amount for the community in the Northern Territory, including co-founding the Healthy Start program, which assists Australian refugees with health literacy. We speak about the importance of these programs, the challenges and stigmas refugees often face, what we can all do to help, and the significance of Sanjay's nomination for Young Australian of the Year. This is a part of a bigger topic around refugees, which we want to cover in depth over time on our podcast. So we hope you enjoy this super insightful conversation. Well, Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. We know you've been super busy with a crazy work schedule, as you've just told us. Um, to give our listeners some context on who you are, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on the show today. Um, so, yeah, my name's Sanjay. I'm 26 and I currently am located in Perth. I'm born and brought up here and uh, my parents are from South India. Mum's from Bengaluru and dad's from near Uti, Gudalur, and their parents are from Kerala. So I speak Malayalam at home. But uh, yeah, and so uh, I've uh, studied here in Perth and then after that I uh, went on to uni in Darwin uh, you know, at the end of high school, I was quite stuck, really didn't know what I wanted to do. Just uh, wanted to chill and play sports the rest of my life. Uh, that's, uh, more that's, than that, that's what every Indian parent wants to hear, right? I, uh, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> my, I was the, uh, the favorite child, clearly. Um, yeah, look, I remember knowing that I, I definitely wanted to be a good person and that cliche help people. And I remember talking to a mentor of mine. And he just told me, you know, you can help people in any profession you do. For example, if you're an engineer, you could be building water sustainability projects mm. uh, that could help communities stay out of severe mortality. And, you know, being able to think so broadly made me appreciate the significance of each and every job. And so I was lucky to get good grades in high school. And, you know, from being an Indian family, you know, the choice is either engineer or doctor. Uh, <laughs> nothing less. So, you know, to get into med school, you had to do the UMAT. So I completely tanked that one. So I remember not getting into any med schools during the first round. So off I went to engineering school. Uh, (laughs) And then I uh, remember I was chilling with the boys after year 12 and I got a call from the university and I got an offer for med school in the second round offers. And at first when I heard, I got into Darwin, I just laughed. I knew I'd never be confident or courageous enough to venture out into the territory um, you know, I was a kid that asked for permission to, you know, go out with my friends. So I remember telling my friends and just cracking up, laughing about it, knowing I'd never go. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm in Darwin. Eventually, I mulled <laughs> over it and I thought, you know, not everyone gets the chance to go mm. and the opportunity to do medicine. So I thought, you know, 
who knows, maybe I'll enjoy it. And, you know, with very supportive parents, um, gave it a shot and uh, I really enjoyed it. I studied and I worked there for about 10 years. Uh, and then this year I've decided to come back a bit more closer to home, given the context of the pandemic. Um, yeah. 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 Wow. What an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was also awesome to read about all of the amazing work you've done in your career thus far as well, especially your work with Healthy Start. Could you tell us a bit about the organization and how you got involved with launching it in the Northern Territory? Yeah, look, thanks very much for your really kind words, guys. Um, but look, I can't take credit for everything. So Healthy Start is a health literacy program focusing on um, preventative health education and run mainly for newly arrived refugees in Australia. So it's a brainchild of a, another junior doctor and a colleague of mine, Dr. Marillo J. Surya. So he founded the first Healthy Start in Brisbane when he was studying. Uh, and he was working in Darwin at the same time I was studying, and he told me about the idea. I loved it. Uh, it took you know a, a couple of years to get it up and running, but yeah, it's it's a one day event. Uh, lots of food, teaching, and really helping these guys uh, get comfortable with the Australian healthcare system in a nutshell. Yeah, wow. And we did read a little bit into it and we'll get into some of the services you guys yeah. provide as part of Healthy Start and everything. But um, I guess, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, Healthy Start is there to help the refugees who have come from various parts of the world. I guess if we take a step back and look at refugees in Australia, could you first define for us and for our listeners a difference between, I guess, a migrant, which is, you know, what your parents, my parents, and, you know, a, a lot of people are versus refugees? Yeah, no, absolutely. So look, you know, refugees, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the WHO has a definition for this, but it's someone that's coming to escape persecution, disease, trauma, and torture from their home country and they have nowhere else to go. Whereas the migrants are, you know, most often seen as people that have had the opportunity to try different jobs, have different experiences, but also um, to empower themselves and get a different uh, worldview um, by traveling at the same time. So um, I think in a, in, I'm sure there's other legal definitions to what a what consists of a migrant, a refugee and an asylum seeker. But I yeah. see the, um, the refugees as uh, people that are escaping serious devastation and harm. Um, and I'm not saying that migrants aren't either, but they probably have more opportunities to, to do that and more avenues um, that probably fast track them uh, mm. to getting into uh, different countries. And, and I guess, uh, and then asylum seekers, are, I guess, are different in the way that they, my understanding is that they don't come through the, the, the legal holes and the red tape that you have and uh, they may come in illegally and then they have to go through that process that uh, refugees have to go through but it's totally different that's my very basic understanding of the differences yeah yeah and I think that's similar to sort of the understanding that Sandin and I have as well it's almost like out of will versus you're almost forced out of a place. And that, exactly. that can also be some of that difference there. So I yeah. guess speaking of newly arrived refugees, what are some of the stigmas around them? I mean, just looking from, I mean, from my perspective, looking in the media, you see almost a bit of a negative connotation sometimes around refugees in Australia as well. Um, so what, what are some of the stigmas that you see? 
Yeah, look, I, I think uh, the stigma definitely exists out there, no matter how much people try to cover it up. I, I think it's a lot less than other countries in, uh, than in Australia than compared to, let's say, the United States uh, or the United Kingdom or even Europe, France, Germany. Um, but I think a lot of the negative stigma comes from either, you know, refugees are terrorists or refugees are stealing our jobs or refugees, um, you know, why should we take care of refugees when we have to take care of our own people first? And, you know, they're all ignorant statements and, you know, things like they aren't the victims we are. So I, I think that kind of stigma definitely exists out there. It's very unfortunate and it's really uh, a reflection of the lack of education, I believe, uh, for the wider community. And um, um, there's fantastic documentaries out there that really show the stories, individual stories, and, and whole stories of communities out there that have travelled all the way from their country to be resettled in a totally new foreign land um, for their safety. So um, mm. these stigmas are definitely uncalled for and they they are baseless statements and unfortunately certain media outlets don't help with extinguishing these stigmas um, maybe just for the sake of sensationalizing stories so yeah like the stigma definitely exists and i think education is the key to uh, helping remove that stigma so something that i admire about many of the adults in my life is how um, you know, since they've established themselves as migrants, they've used their privilege to help other migrants and refugees in whatever capacity they can. And, you know, I think that's a responsibility we should all embrace, right? Mm. Um, one thing that my parents have always done is whenever there's work around the house that we can't do ourselves, that, you know, like only a tradie could do, hiring refugees who are in that field or have started side hustles mm. to kind of help with that work. Mm. And more than the financial side of it, I think what they really value is the relationship aspect, um, you know, being able to share their stories and share their struggles. Um, for me, growing up, hearing those stories and those experiences, it really humbled me and put my privilege in check because, you know, there's so many things that we don't think about refugees having to navigate yeah. because of all the things that we take for granted. And, you know, that's why sometimes my blood boils when people make comments, when they're only um, thinking about them as a statistic or yeah. um, might or how it might affect or inconvenience their lives without trying to understand the human element of it. That's it. Um, so from your side, as someone who works directly with refugees, what do you see as some of those challenges that refugees face that the rest of us are kind of blind to uh, because of everything that we do take for granted? Yeah, look, you know, like I said before, all the kind of society stigma doesn't help. So they're already you know, 10 places behind then, for example, migrant populations that are coming in. And then I guess, again, is them not knowing what's available to them, what resources they have available to help them in the community. You know, there's only so much the Australian government uh, can do, you know, Centrelink and, and all that. They're very, very systemic programs that can help. And they're very, I guess, you have this white man kind of face telling you, you can do this, do that, do this. But like you said, it's being able to connect with the community and having individuals helping them out. You know, it, it helps with having the, the cultural connection as well. So, example, if there's people that have come from Kenya or there's people that have come from uh, Iraq, it, it actually generally helps being able to be with 
that community and having individuals that just be sure. friends, uh, befriending them and taking them to places where the shops are, where the little mm. nooks and corners are, and being able to feel familiar in an environment would definitely be able to help with a lot of the challenges that um, they face. And of course, look, I, you know, I'm standing here from a very privileged point like all we are, and it's really easy to say all this. And uh, I'm sure the best people to ask are the refugees themselves. But I think this is one small thing that we can do. And, and I think another challenge also for them is the um, financial insecurity and the concerns revolving around that, being able to provide for their family. Um, and look, you know, one thing that Healthy Start uh, allows them to do is not only give them that kind of health literacy, but also we provide them avenues into seeking help for finances as well so um yeah uh, it, it quells a lot of their concerns and uh, everyday struggle for sure and you know exploring the experiences of refugees is something we want to do from uh, a bunch of different angles throughout future episodes as well mm. so you know it's great to have you on to get the perspective of someone who's you know working closely with them um but to be honest i hadn't thought too deeply about the importance of health literacy mm. Um, probably, you know, again, because of the things that I do take for granted. Could you speak a little to what health literacy is and, you know, why it is so important to learn about, especially for those who have been forced to resettle in a foreign world? Yeah. So, look, health literacy in a nutshell is education and understanding and knowledge and skills around health, right? So, you know, you and I being brought up most of our lives maybe in Australia uh, we know when if we get a cut or a bruise or a swollen ankle, you know, you don't go and rush up and go to a specialist orthopedic surgeon. You go to a GP or if you're worried, you go to the emergency department. Mm. Um, mm. You know, a lot of refugees coming from different countries have different healthcare systems and different means of accessing health. And just knowing that in Australia, we're so blessed with Medicare free health and that you can go to the GP without you know, being bulk billed and without worrying about money and that going to the GP is where is a starting point rather than going to, you know, a specialist because you can't either get a referral from the GP, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so just not knowing that. So imagine if you've gone to a different country uh, and, you know, you're quite young, healthy, and you don't expect anything bad to happen. And you're going about doing your job there and all of a sudden you get into a car accident and then you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, not knowing their local language and you're stuck mm. in the hospital. And uh, they don't have means of interpreters and they're speaking to you in a foreign language and you're like, what the hell is happening here? So knowing mm. things like that, there are access to interpreters in hospitals, in GP clinics, uh, if they need to go to court. You know, all these kind of government agencies have interpreter services out there to help these guys. And so that's something that we look at. Um, and obviously we were talking about stigma for refugees, the stigma, you know, within refugee cultures from wherever they come from. So, for example, mm. you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of stigma and shame around disability. So in the mm. sub-Saharan African region, you know, disability is seen as like, you know, a cause of witchcraft or, or, a, or a curse. And in the Middle East, you know, disability is linked with feelings of shame and uh, maybe a burden and feel like they're useless. And, and in, in Asian cultures, you know, it's a disability is seen as a karma or, you know, because of the bad deeds that you've done in a past life. And so, so talking about those difficult topics and being able to you know, freely express themselves uh, and know that, you know, seeking care 
and help with the, for example, the NDIS in Australia is mm. not frowned upon. It's something that we encourage all Australians to access if it's indicated for them. So, you know, breaking those kind of moulds uh, that people come from is, is a challenging aspect of the health education that we provide, but it's also very satisfying at the same time yeah. when they, they, yeah. that, that light bulb kind of clicks for them and they're like, oh, my God, this is, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's amazing yeah. because I think often um, to, you know, send this point before about, you know, we're in a place of privilege and we often don't realise how lucky we are to have access to, for example, even free healthcare and even in the Western world, quote unquote, it, it differs, right? I mean, being in Australia, I think we're even luckier than some other Western countries where we do have access to all of this. So coming from a country where people are trying to flee because there's all these other problems that they're trying to run away from, you can only imagine the healthcare system may not always be as up to scratch as it is here in Australia as well. So it's so, so foreign for them. And um, it's amazing the work you guys do, you know, at Healthy Start sure. to, to help them with that. And I guess speaking of that as well, what sort of um, programs do you run? I know you you kind of mentioned a few things that you help these guys with, but mm-hmm. how do you, you help them with that in terms of, you know, the types of programs um, in order to really educate them about this? Yeah. So look, our program's actually very simple and straightforward and it, and it's mainly because it's run by uh, you know, healthcare professionals and healthcare students and it's all everyone volunteering their time together to provide this uh, service. So, so how it really works is it's a day event and all events are quite similar and it starts off with a little introduction and like talk about where everyone's from and we have a little breakfast session and then we go into uh, four stations that we kind of rotate around. Uh, so different places in um, the different healthy starts around Australia do it slightly differently. So the one in Darwin that we do, we run these four stations uh, and they're either like on nutrition, on mental health, uh, on access to health. So, uh, so we go through these four stations in the morning and then uh, we have a lunch break and then usually we we provide the cuisine of the ethnic community that we're catering for that day. Uh, so just a little bit of familiarity, awesome. but also we yeah. break the ice. And then at the end of the day, we bring the men to one side and the women to another side, you know, two different rooms. And then we talk about uh, you know, men's business and women's business because, of course, you know, there's a lot of cultural barriers between it. So we, we try our best to separate that and um, yeah. the final part because we've you know we've gone through so much and we've broken all the ice uh, we're able to have a more free discussion about you know, family planning the you know, sexually transmitted infections and all those really stigmatized topics in their countries and uh, yeah. it's it's really hilarious uh, sometimes I remember uh, one guy in our session asking, uh, you know, after we'd, we've just been talking about sexually transmitted infections and, and contraception, and he says, oh, so in Australia a man can be married to a woman but have multiple other sexual partners? Is that what you're trying to tell us? <laughs> and uh, everyone just cracked up laughing because he missed the point about, you he know. He heard just, what he wanted to hear. He, he had the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's a really fun day. Uh, that we get to know each other. And then, oh, and if we get the time, we then do a quick tour of the hospital. So it's all about familiarising them. So next time, if their child is sick, they know exactly where to go to and they're not worried about all these other things that they don't have to worry about. So um, 
Yeah, that's that's Healthy Start in a Nutshell. We, we try to do about three or four sessions a year and we work with the Refugee Settlement Agency in Darwin to link in with our clients. Um, and unfortunately, obviously, COVID has uh, significantly affected us. So last year, we were only able to do one session. Um, then another significant factor that's obviously affected our work is that the number of refugees that are coming into Australia yeah, significantly declined. So like yeah. in Australia, you know, before these are pre-pandemic numbers, there's about 20,000 on average every year refugees that apply for seeking refuge in Australia or settlement. And out of that, only about 2,000 are processed in a year. But because of this pandemic, it's gone down. And so what we're moving into and what we see ourselves in the next year or so, we're trying to kind of revamp the uh, education space to also um, incorporate newly arrived migrants as well because we believe that they both share a lot of the same challenges Mm. and that our health literacy sessions will be beneficial to both. Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, just hearing and seeing you speak to it, um, we really see the passion you have for the organization and the work that you're doing come through, which is amazing. And it's such a practical and powerful system that you've set up, right? Um, With your colleagues who started the organization in Brisbane and with you personally launching it in Darwin, what kind of sparked the idea or how do you identify that there was this sort of gap that you needed to fill? Yeah, so look, uh, I'll talk mainly about myself, I guess, um, because I've I've spoken to uh, Morello, the guy that founded it in Brisbane. I guess, you know, we're both working health professionals and we see a vast number of uh, patients and populations from all across Australia. And I guess the one thing that, unfortunately, our healthcare system lacks. I mean, our healthcare system is fantastic and, and is probably one of the best healthcare systems out there. Um, but something that we could definitely improve on is education for patients across all all uh, populations, uh, you know, the educated and not, um, uh, the, uh, the high socioeconomic classes and not. But, you know, seeing the challenges faced by, you know, for me working in Darwin with the Indigenous population uh, and also newly arrived migrants and refugees and seeing how scared they are to make decisions for themselves for their health because they just, they don't know what's happening. And, and English is mm. often a second or third or fourth or fifth language for a lot of yeah. them, and I'm not even exaggerating. Uh, seeing that struggle definitely sparked a little bit of, you know, we, we can do something very straightforward and very simple. My parents, you know, when they came to Australia, they came in with $50, they keep telling me that. And my dad, like, knowing maybe like 10 words in English and now, mm. uh, you know, seeing them grow and facing a lot of challenges and, and racism and all of this that are, that are just part and mm. parcel, unfortunately, that, that we do still have in the 21st century. Uh, I just thought that it's something simple that we can do. Uh, what, you know, I'm a health professional. What's my expertise? Health. That's something that I can pass on uh, in very simplistic terms that doesn't need any fancy explanations. And um, I remember doing my first session uh, with Marillo after having, you know, about a year of us 
organizing this and trying to get funding for this um, mm. and um, selling it to people and then just going through that first session and that just sense of satisfaction and it's like, oh, my God, yeah. we've actually yeah. just done it. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was really incredible and it's just sparked me to keep on going. Uh, and you hear through the refugee agencies, the settlement agencies, how their clients, you know, now they see themselves at Woolies or at Coles and they look at the packaging and they oh, look okay. for that nutrition label yep. that we've taught them in the nutrition classes. Oh, and good. being able to see that it's translating in real life, it helps us motivate to keep on going. Yeah. Um, and we sure. have amazing volunteers that span from students, from all health, um, you know, allied health, occupational therapy, physio, pharmacy, everyone uh, that engages with us. And it's just so awesome to see their enthusiasm uh, and being able to part a bit of cross-cultural communication skills for them as well. It's a win-win for everyone. Everyone. Um, yeah, that's amazing. So, and I think, yeah. you know, if this type of program was available all over Australia, I think it would mm. be so, so helpful because, I mean, uh, for example, my sister studies social work and she did her placement at a hospital and she came across a lot of refugees and because she can speak Tamil, because we speak Tamil at home, they were happy for her to talk to some of the, you know, the Tamil refugees who had come through. And she really realised the gap there um, of even refugees in, you know, a metropolitan city like Sydney, um, how they're still unsure of, of things or, or need help because they don't know about the healthcare system here. So I might tell her about this program. I feel like she might go flitting off to Darwin. Um, oh, <laughs> um, so yes. I, know you did, I know you did speak about um, some of the, you know, reactions that these refugees had to the programs that you guys are running. But in general, the, your clients that you worked with, are they quite open to these sorts of services on the sort of day that you guys organise? Or are they a little bit apprehensive at first to learning all of this stuff? Yeah, so look, uh, when we first started this five, six years ago maybe, uh, there was a lot of difficulties organising the sessions. So we'd plan for, you know, there's a lot of planning that goes behind these sessions. And and so we'd work with the refugee agencies and they'd be like, look, we have, you know, 50 refugees at the moment that we believe that this program will benefit for them. And then so we plan for 50 but then I remember the first session that we had, it eventually ended up having about 25, 30 people rock up. And it's purely mm-hmm. because, you know, people are just sleeping in or they've forgotten about it or, um, you know, and then there, there just wasn't that much noise around what Healthy Start is about. Uh, and so it wasn't, I think, them being apprehensive of coming. I think it was just them not knowing what exactly this is about. Is this just right. another thing that the Australian government has for us? Is it, are they just going to hand out pamphlets for us and then just tell mm-hmm. us to go do this? So what we found has happened over the years is that just by word of mouth and other people talking to the others in their community, people are coming to us to ask us when our next session is now. Oh, because they're so, And some of them actually want to keep coming in for, you know, second or third time, even though we're, we're teaching the same stuff over and over again. Uh, so it's, that, that's really awesome to see that growth that Healthy Star has had, and it clearly shows that it's working. I think the word of mouth really uh, hones in to get more people excited for us um as much as we can just put a poster out there it's just coming and experiencing it is what really helps yeah so no no real challenges for them to actually wanting to come to healthy yeah, stuff wow. after they know exactly yeah. what it's about yeah that makes yeah. sense so i guess to that 
from an organizational point of view, mm. what are the biggest challenges in terms of running Healthy Start? Uh, do you feel like language or cultural barriers factor in? You know, does funding ever become an issue? Uh, yeah, like what are the kind of challenges that you face? Yeah, look, initially it was funding, but once we approached the Top End Health Service, uh, that's our main health service in the Northern Territory, uh, and we, you know, all these health services obviously have quotas and agendas for community engagement programs. And, you know, once they saw how passionate we were and what we had to offer, they were willing to give us, you know, trial funding. And, you know, all they needed was one session to figure out, oh, yeah, this is something that's making a change. So we were able to easily capture more funding for this program and also being able to build relationships with the refugee settlement agencies because they play a huge part in the actual logistics of the day. Mm. Um, being able to gather all the clients for the day is a huge task and, um, you know, hats off to them for that. And after them, seeing how much it's helped their clients as well, we've uh, we've got a memorandum of understanding with these you know, refugee settlement agencies. Uh, so that helps us have that sustainability. So that's been great. I think more of our challenges exist more on the actual running of the events. So often, right. I think in our early days, we used to combine different ethnic groups together for the same day because you know, we're, we're all about multiculturalism and not discriminating. But what we realised was there's different levels of understanding and education within different cultural groups. And mm. uh, what we realized was the time and confusion that existed when, you know, interpreters had to interpret certain things that we were saying within that small group setting in a station. But also different cultures value different things. And in the men's and women's business, there were conflicting uh, questions and arguments arising as well about belief right. systems. And so what we realized was, I think, for the sake of having a more productive event we decided that you know we tried about two or three times and then we realized look it's it's not us it's genuinely just difficult to have these uh, events with different communities and so we've decided that we have to do separate events for that um which is so interesting yeah it's, it's really interesting unfortunate but also it, it's given us a really good understanding about how different cultures are unique in their own way and we've yeah. got to respect that yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it makes sense as well, like the way you're explaining it, because I mean, for us growing up in a multicultural society, we're bound with people of different cultures by the fact that we all also identify as Australian, whereas these newly arrived refugees, they just come from such varying backgrounds, religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and so on and so forth, that they haven't found that I guess, middle ground to relate with one another yet. I mean, obviously, aside from the fact that they've come as refugees, but aside from that, they haven't been exposed to different cultures in the way that we have. So I think it makes sense when it comes to, to splitting it up like that, although it's a lot more work for you guys to do <laughs> on your end, it seems. But um, I did want to ask, what surprised you most about the clients you work with? Was there any sort of, um, I guess, definitive moment that you remember or anything in particular that surprised you the most that you yourself weren't aware of before you started this program? Well, I guess we all hear about, you know, the trauma and the persecution of refugees that they're escaping from and uh, it doesn't become, it doesn't really resonate with you until you've mm. actually met someone and they tell you, 
face to face their life story because they they feel like they can trust you and they they feel comfortable with you and just just realizing how serious it actually is some of their stories and how strong and resilient these guys are is probably the biggest take for me and of course it's it's just really amazing to see how engaging they are and the questions that they ask and uh but also just realizing that at the end of the day they're all human beings with their own individuality and they're not vulnerable if they were put in their comfort zone you know mm. we call we label them as their vulnerable mm. people of society yada, yada, yada. and it's just you know i would be vulnerable too if i went to a different country and didn't yeah. know their local yeah. language that's so true. and so you know often that's the biggest barrier that i see for them and so you know being able to give pathways for different language groups and utilizing interpreters like i said is a, is a huge thing and i'd like to really push for the next generation of all healthcare workers and and government agencies out there yeah that's awesome i guess shifting gears a little bit you spoke earlier about how you know we are so fortunate with the health system we have in australia which like you said um is a lot better than many other parts of the world but what do you see as some of the hurdles within australian institutions and the public health system for refugees specifically yeah i mean i think most of the stuff that i've said really encompasses a lot of that challenges and it's really being able to cater for these guys in a more inclusive manner and like i said i think inter- using interpreters is such a undersold um service out there because i you know is um getting phone interpreters sometimes and then the the smile on their faces when they realize there's someone that they can actually relate to and just speak their own language mm. and not struggle with one or two you know basic english words that they have and they have to just really kind of twist and turn it to uh express themselves um it, it would really help and having forms in their own languages would help if they're filling out yeah. uh things for That's you so know centrelink etc having videos in their own languages and um maybe really just having uh the, the, you know this is a this is above my pay grade but government agencies really sorting out the whole issue about refugees and detention centers you know you hear mm. all these stories about people being taken away from their families it's just so heartbreaking and sad and really are we is this what australia means is this who australians are I don't think so um and I think that's where our biggest challenge lies is uh, really changing that stigma that we to- spoke about earlier about people coming into Australia because it's so funny because you know, the whole how Australia got settled in the first place captain yeah, Cook coming in exactly. this is or, you know, know literally any other yeah, western any other country, western country it's, it's, you know we all know this exists and whenever whenever certain topics come up we just shove it under the rug and it's just so so sad to see and with the protests in Sydney that we were talking about earlier like your know, freedom we want our freedom it's just so so oxymoronic and um, I just so wish true. we could see past that yeah. yeah yeah for sure and that's definitely a big topic that we'll come back to in a future episode about asylum seekers and the you know really messed up processes and detention center systems we have here in Australia. Yeah, 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 and you brought up a really good point there as well in terms of um the the way that Australia was colonized to begin with. I mean, Sendin and I we did an episode on racism a few episodes back and we talked about how 
everyone is a migrant unless you're a First Nation Australian. It's just the timeline and, and when you came. Yep. Um, yeah. So it's just about providing that same level of respect to everyone that comes in and, yeah, getting an understanding of, you know, they must have really gone through some hardship in order to, to flee their country, come to Australia using such difficult means that you can't even imagine, you know, when you hear stories of people who'd arrived in boats and stuff like that. Like imagine risking your life to that extent. So, yeah, I think there definitely needs to be a bit more education into their stories to for people to really connect from a human side as well. Um, for people like us, you know, who are established migrants, um, you know, what can people like us do to really help newly arrived Australians? Um, I don't know, we spoke about a couple of these earlier as well, but is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, like I said, I think just being a friend, you know, if you, if you come across someone uh, and just knowing them, it's because it, you know, one topic that we don't, we kind of, I kind of missed uh, talking about was I think mental health in, yeah. in mm. refugee populations. There's been studies and it's very well documented. You know, mental health is very poorly just missed and just avoided because it's also a stigma. Uh, but that's really affecting a lot of refugees coming into Australia and other countries. Uh, and just being able to help them in that journey by being a friend, uh, showing them what they need and what they may not know, I, I think is the most important thing that each one of us can do. Uh, being able to reach out to uh, refugee settlement agencies is something simple that we can do. If you speak another language, helping out as translators, as your your sister does, uh, Romy, um, these are simple things that we can do to make someone's journey a little less uh, terrible and dreadful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. most sure. definitely. When it comes to Healthy Start in particular, um, how can people like us help contribute towards that program? Yeah, so um, we're on Facebook. Um, uh, so if you just like Healthy Start, Healthy Start Darwin in particular, if you're in Darwin, you can find us and just like the page or you can just contact me on any social media platform and we can get you in touch. You're like, you don't even have to be in the health background to help us. You don't have to be a health student to help us, you know, because being an Australian, we have a lot more knowledge and skills that we can share in these sessions uh, than you guys think that you may not have. Uh, so, yeah, just get in touch with us and we'll be able to show you where we'd love your help yeah for sure and we'll put all the details on our instagram and yeah, in the definitely. episode notes as oh, well. thank you thanks guys. um just going back to what you were saying earlier about being a friend i remember my parents having a conversation with a refugee anna who um helped us out with some landscaping work and we got quite close to and i remember him pointing to me and saying to my parents you know like I've got a son back home who your son reminds me of. Mm. Um, For me, it was moments like that where it kind of clicked that it can be as simple as, you know, having those conversations to be a really good ally. Yeah. Um, You know, hearing about his life, you know, what it was like back home, um, the struggles he's faced and, you know, continues to face. And then, you know, being able to have those conversations in their mother tongue just makes it even more deep and empowering. Because they're also so lonely as well. Like they've, left their family and, and so I know some people that still have their family members in detention centers for more than yeah. five, six years. And you're just mm. sitting there like, gosh, this is, this is dreadful. This is absolutely dreadful. Um, but yeah, just being, just being a friend, I think is the biggest message that I could impart. Mm. That's awesome. Um, kind of coming to the close of today's episode, 
We also wanted to talk to you about your nomination for Young Australian of the Year in the Northern Territory. Um, could you tell us a bit about that? Because, you know, that is such an amazing, amazing. achievement. And <laughs> as we've touched on in previous episodes, you know, it's so important to see that representation of people who look like us being recognised in this really special way. Yeah, look, again, look, thanks very much for those kind words. And when I, so when I received that nomination, I was genuinely surprised and humbled and, and stoked as well at the same time, because I just feel like uh, you know, I've just been doing something that I've been doing for a very long time and it's just normal for me and I can't believe someone would uh, single me out for it because I just feel like I'm not doing anything more than uh, anyone else can or should do. Oh, so, um, you're too so humble. humble. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, but look, the reason why I got nominated for that award was kind of multifactorial. So me working in Darwin, I, I've been very engaged with representation of junior doctors in, you know, medical education and uh, medical admin and our kind of welfare for junior doctors. So I've been doing a lot of advocacy for that because even, even though the healthcare system in Australia is so amazing, like I've said before, and compared to Malaysia or India where doctors work for 24, 36 hours in a row, we have it a lot more better over here. But there's still a lot more things that we can fix. And that's one of the reasons why I got nominated was because I've, I've been, I feel like I've been very integral in a lot of changes to rostering and welfare in junior doctor spheres across the territory. Amazing. And I've been advocating for a lot of innovative changes uh, in technologies to help us become more efficient in our day-to-day jobs uh, and be able to give more time to patients um, rather than a lot of the kind of menial tasks that junior doctors end up doing and a lot of unpaid overtime. So that's one aspect for why I got uh, nominated. But also I, I participated in a lot of medical education teaching for medical students as well. And I really, I think the theme is uh, education, really. I really love uh, awesome. being able to impart my knowledge and teach anything that forward. I'm able to do. Because uh, I just feel like one extra person that's able to have that knowledge and just spread like wildfire is, is just such an easy simple thing to do uh, and that's how like that's what uh, doctoring is it's like an internship really you're just passing on knowledge we, we study for six years in uni but trust me without youtube and wikipedia and and the <laughs> lot we're nothing we're absolutely nothing um uh, and then and then finally uh, obviously healthy start so I, I think the main reason for my nomination was education and, and being a voice for that empowerment mm. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, you can really see the passion come through as you speak yeah. as well. And I did read um, in your nomination as well that you also did some work with Indigenous Australians over in the Northern Territory. And I know that's a whole other topic that Sandlin and I want to cover, but um, it's obviously also important that we're looking after, you know, the First Nations of our country as well. So could you talk to the importance of that and the type of work um, that you've done with Indigenous Australians? Yeah, look... Um I, I don't think I've done anything more special for the Indigenous communities for the Northern Territory than my colleagues have. So so mainly it's just working in remote communities uh, via like day trips and then I assist with clinics uh, with my bosses is really the main thing that I've been able to do. And there's a lot of importance. Uh, you know, I've worked in Perth and Dow and there's a lot more importance in Indigenous cultural awareness than there is anywhere else in Australia, I believe. So um uh, something that I've learned 
from working with the Indigenous communities is being able to respect their different, uh, you know, values and belief systems. Mm. For example, people that come from these remote areas, they really do believe in bush medicine and there is a lot of stigma for them with Western medicine because they see their their family members passing away in hospitals and, and because of that lack of communication, people aren't really able to put two and two together that, you know, they had this terminal illness or they had this chronic condition that's advanced and then they passed away. It's not because they've come into hospital and we've given them, you know, Western medicine and medicine. Both, they've passed away. It's, there's a lot of, you know, misunderstanding that exists there, but they do value their bush medicine more so than anything else. So uh, an example that I often give is a patient that needs to go to have dialysis. So dialysis is when they have kidney failure and the kidneys don't work and they need to be put on a machine. And these machines, because they're so expensive and they take a lot of time and energy to run, you need a, you know, need a specialized kidney nurse and a kidney doctor and so they they can't run these in remote cities and often if Mm. if you need dialysis that means you need to move your whole life from a remote community for where you've been all your life to the city and being able to face the realization that a patient that you've been looking after for the last week that needs dialysis has decided that they don't want dialysis because they'd rather be at home with their family and they that's their importance that's where they place their importance and that they will probably pass away in the next week or two because they're not getting dialysis um is is very confronting but it's something that i've learned to accept because if you put yourselves in those shoes maybe you might make that same decision as well Mm. so um such an interesting perspective uh, Mm. yeah it's that perspective so yeah, well, there's a lot to learn and I think there's a lot to do with Indigenous communities, the lack of resources, remote communities, whether you're Indigenous or not, remote communities, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of lack of resources out there. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of room to move for Australia. Yeah. yeah, amazing. And, I mean, look, it's it's amazing what you've been doing and really using that privilege to, to give back to the community because, you know, you could very easily just stay in your safe space and not do all of this. Um, but the fact that you are is amazing and obviously being nominated for that award really also makes you a great representative. And that's how we also found you. Um, hopefully that's not too creepy. <laughs> but we were like, I wonder if there's been a South Asian that's been nominated I'm here and you were like actually. the only one. And I was like, what the heck? Uh, <laughs> We've got to get this guy on. Um, so as a way of kind of closing off the episode, do you have any recommendations for our audience? It can really be anything, a book, a TV show. It could be related to what you're doing or, or completely unrelated as well. Uh, yeah, look, if I had to end off with something i'd be like you know try something new and challenge yourself so like i've been rock climbing before right so but you know you wear a harness and everything and it's nice and safe um (laughs) but uh i've been i don't know if you've heard of bouldering that's something that like i've seen before and i've just been like oh my god they're not wearing any harnesses how the hell would you do that so my friend got into it and he told me to come along and join in so that's been really fun it's actually not as scary as you think it is because they've actually got this massive cushion down. And as long as you know how to jump carefully, it's fine. So uh, that's been really fun. And probably to stay on topic, something that I really recommend people to read or watch is the movie or book, The Kite Runner. In a nutshell, it's, it's, a, it's a fictional but partly based on a true story during the time of Afghanistan's monarchy being fallen through the Soviet Union and the exodus of refugees from Afghanistan 
to you know other countries like the United States and the rise of the Taliban. So it's it's a really heartwarming, heart sinking, very very emotional roller coaster of a movie. So I'd really recommend that. Amazing. That's awesome. Great recommendation. Great recommendation. And yeah. I'm sure your Indian parents are thrilled about you doing bouldering. I have to have that in there. <laughs> I know mine would freak uh, yes. out. <laughs> Well, Sanjay, you are so inspirational with your attitude and all the work that you do. Um, I think this conversation has been a really good reminder that, you know, we can all do something in our own way to help refugees or anyone who's doing it tough. Um, You know, a massive thank you once again for joining us. And we can't wait to see what you're going to achieve next and what's in store for you. Thank you. And just before we finish, can I just shout out, like, I know you guys have been saying how amazing I am, but I just want to say, I want to thank a lot of people and just a few people is Marillo. And uh, I'd like to thank Elise, another doctor that I work with, and Maya, uh, who I work with, with Healthy Start. So I just want to say, like, it's a team effort. These guys have been very integral for this uh, organization. I just want to thank everyone that's been helping us uh, volunteering and whatnot through the years. So, yeah, thanks. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sanjay. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to check out Healthy Start's website or Facebook to find out more about the amazing work that they do and how you can get involved. Remember to subscribe and check out our other episodes if you haven't already. It would be super dope if you could leave us a rating and review as well. It'll help us out heaps. We'll catch you on our next episode where we interview Janani Sharma, a.k.a. Janani Sings, who you may recognize from her viral TikTok and Instagram track, I Don't Believe in Soulmates, but... See you then. Bye.